Good morning. I'm very happy to be with you this morning. I love to come into a church that I know believes in reaching the people around the world, sending and making sure that people are able to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth, but also to be a part of a church that believes in walking across the street. It was obvious to me what you did last week that you are concerned about your neighbors. And I believe with all of my heart that that's what Jesus calls us to do. He tells us to start in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. And I believe that you are a part of that. You're a part of the kingdom of God that's right here in Flint. And I believe that God is using your church to make sure that people all around the world hear the gospel. What kind of a Christian are you anyway? And that's my question for all of us, really. And it's a question I think about every single day. What kind of a Christian am I going to be today? Whether I'm in Flint or whether I'm in Indianapolis or wherever I am, whether I, if I'm in Jerusalem or in Baghdad or wherever I might be, what kind of a Christian do I want to be? I looked into the scriptures to see, really to answer this question, because I really desire to be, like, be the kind of Christian that is a true follower of Jesus. In fact, I even want to be like him. There's an event in the life of Jesus that I want us to read about this morning, and then I want to share a little bit about that event. And that event was something that really defines for me, because the wine and the vodka, they, that doesn't define me as what kind of a Christian I want to be. But this event really defines for me, for me and for others what kind of a Christian I want to be as I follow and try to imitate Christ and try to be like him. I'd like for us to turn to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John chapter 4. And let's stand together as we read God's Word. I'm going to start reading it at verse 4, and I'm going to read through verse um, 15. This is the word of the Lord. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, he sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus asked, said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, But you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. 
When we lived in, um, when we first moved to Israel after we had done uh, Arabic language study in Jordan, we lived in Nazareth. Nazareth is about two and a half hours north of Jerusalem. We had missionary family that lived in Jerusalem, and they had twin daughters that were just a little bit older than ours, but they used to love to play together. So when our girls had some time off school, we would go down to Jerusalem and let the girls hang out together. And then Kay and I would be able to visit and kind of regroup and think about our strategy and our mission with our other couple. We would uh, often drive from Nazareth. We would often leave after church on Sunday nights as the kids didn't have school on Monday. And we would drive down the West Bank, drive through Afula and through Ramallah and through Nablus and those towns that right now we cannot even drive through directly like we did before. We would drive that way because we used to love the Arabic sweets and the Arabic sandwiches and things like that, that we would stop and buy some of the Arabic food. But when we, uh, now today, there are checkpoints. Today there are boundary areas that, in fact, Israel has put up signs going into those areas that it's dangerous to go into those areas. But we would go down in those areas and We would go through the area of Nablus, which was the area of Samaria, where this event really took place. Now, Jesus and the disciples had been in Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, when all the Jewish people would go to Jerusalem. And the scripture tells us, if you read a little bit earlier in John chapter 2, it said they were headed for Jerusalem for the Passover. So he was on his way back to the Galilee because the Pharisees, they had started hearing that he was baptizing and they weren't, uh, they were going to come after him. And so he and the disciples left. Now, usually when you went from Nazareth, especially on foot, because that area is very mountainous, it's very rugged. And so people would have gone down to the Arava or they would have gone down to the Jordan Valley and they would have traveled up that way because the people were friendly to them. There were other Jewish people there. There was plenty of water. There were people who were very hospitable and would welcome them to even spend their time with them. So they would travel down the Jordan Valley. But Jesus didn't choose when they went back to the Galilee, he did not go the Jordan Valley. In fact, there's one word that I want to draw out of this scripture, and I'm not going to take it out of its context. I believe this is the context of the scripture, but there's one word from this event and from this passage that we read today that I want to pull out, and I want us to try to understand it. It's a very simple word. It's a word we probably use every day, but it's in chapter chapter 4, verse 4, and it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. Why did he have to go through Samaria? Did he have a divine appointment there? Was there a reason that God, his father, was taking him there? For some reason, and I believe we're going to discover that as we discuss this event, Jesus had to go through Samaria. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, we read that he had told his disciples to avoid the Samaritan villages because the people weren't friendly. The Samaritans, and we see in this text that the Samaritans and the Jews were not friendly people to each other. Now, when they went through Samaria, they had to go through Samaria. The disciples, they went off. They left Jesus there by himself, sitting on the well. And uh, he was sitting there at noontime when it's very hot. And a strange event happened. A woman came to the well. 
a woman who was all alone. alone. And if you know anything about the ancient Jewish culture and the Arab culture, women did not go out alone. They went with their family members or they went with other women. There was a reason why this woman did not go with other women. Most of the women went to draw water early in the morning, when, before the sun came up even, or before the heat of the day. But here, it was noontime. It was noontime. And here this lady comes out alone. Why was she by herself? The other ladies in town probably didn't want to have anything to do with her. If you read further in the, stu- in the story, in the event, Jesus says, go and bring your husband. And she tells him, and he already knew it, She says, but I have no husband. He said, you're right. She's had five husbands. And now she's living with a man that's not even her husband. So do you think that other people in the neighborhood, the the ladies in her, her family, and the other ladies would want to spend time with her and walk out alone in the desert with a lady who had lived such a life? No, she was a lady that was pretty much set on the margins of their village because she was a lady of what we might say of ill repute, a lady who had a bad reputation. So here she was coming alone. So why would he even talk to her? Why would a man of his state, why would he even talk to a woman like that? And why would he talk to a Samaritan woman because he was Jewish? It sure surprised her. And she says to him, why are you even talking to me? I'm a Samaritan. And then she says, he says to her, he says that he had something to offer her. Now, isn't that the way sometimes? And the disciples came back. It tells us they came back and they were shocked that he was sitting there talking to a woman, a Samaritan woman. But isn't that the way we are sometimes in our communities that we we see someone that may have a very, very bad reputation or someone who is so different than us? And we might not approach them because of their differences or because of what other people might think. Jesus didn't worry about what the disciples thought. In fact, he rebuked them kind of and gave them some great teachings that we'll talk about in just a few minutes. Jesus didn't worry about her being a Samaritan, didn't worry about her being a woman. He didn't even think about her being marginalized, didn't worry about the color of her skin or her moral or immoral lifestyle or even her religious background. They were different, and in this, in this event, later on, Jesus says to her about, talks to her about worship, and she says, oh, but you're Jewish. You worship in Jerusalem. We worship here on the mountain. Now, the Samaritans did not worship in the temple. The Samaritans worshiped on Mount Gerizim, and they still do today, by the way. They worship up on, or they worship on Mount Gerizim, right there in Nablus, right there on the West Bank. But she says, you Jews, you worship up in the temple. You make your sacrifices up in the temple. But we do that here in Samaria, here on Mount Gerizim. Jesus um, didn't, he said to her, he says, oh, it doesn't really matter. There's going to come a day when we're not going to worry about where we worship. We're not going to worry about the temple because God's going to live differently than he lived in the temple or for you on Mount Gerizim. But he said, there's going to come a day when we all worship God in spirit and in truth. When we lived in the Middle East, we realized that there were people who worshiped God differently than us. There were Jewish people, and there are many different sects of Judaism. There are the ultra-Orthodox, the Orthodox, the religious, some of the men who wear kippah, 
the kippot, but they, and then there are some of the people who are very secular. About 70% of the country of Israel is actually secular. They may be like our, I don't even know what we call them, um, nominal Christians here or Easter and Christmas Christians here, you know what I mean? People who only worship the Lord on special holidays or holy days. And there are many people, Jewish people in Israel that are like that. But also in the Muslim religion, and when we lived on, in Jordan, when we lived on the West Bank, when we lived in Nazareth, probably 80% of the people, 90% of the people were, were Muslim. And there are many different sects of Islam. There's the Sunni, the Shiite, the Alawites. There are many different sects of Islam. So all of them worship differently, and they look at the prophet differently. So there are many different sects of, of Jews but, and, and Muslims. But Jesus didn't worry about what she was or what her religious background was. Today, we realize that there are many, so many divisions among the people. Even here in the U.S., there are so many divisions among people. And uh, sometimes because of our differences, we try to walk away from those people that are different than us. But it's obvious in the scripture today that these major differences between the Jews and the Samaritans did not bother Jesus. In fact, he had to go. He had to go. I look at this, and whenever I read this, I think about a divine appointment. A divine appointment. Now, I was called to be a foreign missionary when I was 18. My wife was called when she was younger, and we went on an assignment from God and from the church, and we're thankful for that. But we went because God had called us. It was a divine calling from God. But I believe in looking at this that our streets are calling us, that God is calling us in our streets. He's calling us around the world to go, you're going to Panama, you're partnering with Panama. You're also partnering with other churches here in Flint. But God is calling us. It is a divine appointment that we respond to when we respond to missions. It's not just going out to a foreign country as a designated missionary, but it's responding to a divine appointment from God. When we went to Mount Gerizim several times for the Samaritan Passover, and the Samaritans are the only sect that still sacrifice a lamb on Passover. And, uh, you know, the Jewish people, they don't have the temple anymore, so they don't sacrifice the lamb. And we went up, we would go up there, and, and the language of the Samaritans is kind of an ancient Hebrew, but also it's Arabic, and uh, because they live in the Arab area on the West Bank. And um, we were there, and they, every family brought a lamb to be sacrificed. There were about 40 different families, and all of them bring this lamb. Well, the lambs have to be perfect. You know, the sacrifice has to be perfect. Well, the um, families would go around and inspect the lamb, and they would look at all these different lambs. They found a lamb that had a little nick in the ear, and I don't know if it was just planted there to show us or what, but they grabbed this lamb, and they took it out, and they threw it out and had to bring another lamb to be able to be sacrificed. Well, when they brought the lambs to the altar area where they sacrificed them, the lambs would be laid there. The men would come, and they would be crying, and they would be weeping, almost like at a um, a Nazarene altar. They were weeping and, and crying, and they would cut the throat of the lamb, and the lamb would start bleeding all over the altar. And then they would take this blood, and they'd start going around and sharing it with each other, and putting it on their their uh, their clothes, their white robes. They would take it to their families and make sure that this blood of the lamb was was also touching other people. 
It was interesting after it was all over, and there was like shouting, like they had just been been saved. Anyway, they they uh, the high priest wanted to explain to all of us who were there, and it was during a time of one of the intifadas that the uprisings that very few people were there. So he said to me, he said, would you translate for me? I'll speak in Arabic, but he said, a lot of these people don't speak Arabic or ancient Hebrew. So could you translate? So I did. And uh, he translated, was telling me how, what they were doing. He said, we sacrifice the lamb. We throw all of the innards. We throw the wool, everything, because the, sacri- the lamb has to be, or the, the sacrifice has to be complete. And I knew that. But uh, he started talking about that. And he said, we put a stake through the lamb. And then we put it into this big pit in the ground that's got burning fire in it that will roast the lamb. Then each family will take the lamb home and follow the Passover laws. And then they will take it home and eat it, eat it with their family and their friends. So, but when he was talking, he used the word, when he talked about putting the stake into the lamb, he used the word salib, which is an Arabic word for basically to crucify. We crucify the lamb. We use the, the, the stake and we crucify the lamb. And then he said to everyone after he explained all this, and I, and I was shocked. I said, you, you actually crucify the lamb. Yes, yes, we talk about it in that way. And then he said, um, listen, if you didn't get this or understand it or you didn't get enough pictures, come back next year because we do this all over again. I thought, wow, we have got a message of a lamb that was sacrificed once and for all, not far from here in Jerusalem, that was sacrificed once and for all. And we don't have to keep coming back every year to witness it. We can celebrate it, but we don't have to come back and make a sacrifice every year. Amen, amen. We worship a lamb that was sacrificed for us once and for all, whose blood was spilled out for each one of us once and for all. And Jesus was telling this lady, there's going to be someday you may understand all of this. Well, obviously, if you look through the rest of this chapter, chapter four, you see in this event that this lady did understand. She did drink from this living water and went back and her life was so changed that these people who had marginalized her and put her aside because of her reputation, these people actually came to believe in the one who had changed her life. And you know, that's the kind of Christian I want to be. That I can go out and I can accept people, I can love people, and I can offer them living water to come to Jesus and the people around will so see the changes in my life, the changes in our lives, and the hope that we have so that they too will come to know this lamb. They will come to know Christ who was was sacrificed. I, um, but the, going to the Samaritan Passover helped me a lot to understand a little bit more about this story and a little bit more about the lamb that was sacrificed for you and for me. Well, the disciples came back. They came back and they were surprised. They said, what is going on here? And Jesus says to them, he says, I must do the will of my father. I had to come through Samaria. It was a divine appointment. That's why I pulled out that word for us to think about today because I believe that God has a plan for each one of us.
For every person here today, whether you're walking closely to the Lord or whether you're far from the Lord, I believe that God has a divine plan for each of you, and that is to come to him, to drink from the living water, and then for you to go and fulfill what his plan is for your life. And then the disciples are talking to him, and he says something else to them that I, it helped me to understand this in living in the Middle East. When Jesus says to them, don't say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They're white, all ready to harvest. Why did Jesus say four months? Did you ever think about that? Why did he, what did he mean by that passage? Well, I believe I, I can help you to understand that a little bit better. Passover comes in the springtime. It's a time when Jesus says to them, don't wait for the big harvest. The big harvest is usually in the fall. It usually starts in August when all the grapes are harvested. And you know, without their grapes, they couldn't have their wine or their juices. Without the grapes, without the olives, the October, which starts this next week, believe it or not, is Wak de Zaytun. It's the time of the olives when every family goes out with mothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers and grandparents and children. Everyone goes out into their, their olive groves and they pick the olives. It's the time of the olives. You can go into an Arab village and not find anyone because they're all out picking their olives. That's in October. The figs are ripe. The nuts are, the almonds, the the walnuts, all of the nuts are ripe in the fall. So everything is ripe. That's the big harvest. That's the big harvest. Jesus says to them, but don't wait for the big harvest. But he said, look on the fields now. What is ripe in the spring? What gets white? The wheat and the grain. If you eat a meal without bread in the Middle East, either in the Jewish world or the Arab world, you would, be, you would feel like you've missed out on something because they serve bread with everything. It's their daily bread. Talk about daily bread. They have daily, and many of us do too, unless we're on a diet like we, I should be. But uh, Jesus uh, says to them, don't wait for the big harvest. Okay, you fortunately are going to be having Dr. Warwick come in a couple of weeks, and he is fantastic. It really got inspired spirit-inspired man, and you're going to have a, a great time of harvesting then. But Jesus says, don't wait for the revivals. Don't wait for the camp meetings. Don't wait for the big emphasis. But look out now. Walk across the street now. Don't wait for the excursion or the, the trip to Panama or wherever you're going to go around the world. But look out now and walk across the street because the fields are white and they're ready to be harvested. And Jesus had to do this. He says, I have to do this. I have to do the will of my Father. So what are the main lessons that I have learned from this? First of all, I believe in looking at Jesus... And this is the kind of Christian I want to be. In response to Yaakov, this is what I want to be identified as. I want to be the kind of Christian that believes from this event today that we read about that all people are redeemable. All people are redeemable. No matter what their background is. No matter if they're, they're Jewish or Muslim or a, a terrorist no matter what their background is, all people are redeemable. Paul wrote to the Romans and he says, there's no difference between the Jew and the Greek. 
He said, the Lord is the same Lord over all. And everyone or anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So anyone who calls on the Lord, that means anyone, no matter what color of race, no matter what race they're from, no matter what religious background they're from, no matter what their sexual orientation is, if they call on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. But how can they hear without a preacher? That's what Paul goes on to tell the Romans. So in other words, he says, we have to, we have to be ready to go out there and proclaim the living water that Jesus has to give to all mankind, men or women. The second thing is this, God is not willing that anyone should perish. He did not want the Samaritans who worshiped in a different place and in a different way. He did not want them to perish. So Jesus had to go through Jerusalem. The disciples had to go through Jerusalem to proclaim to them that God wasn't willing that even the Samaritans would perish. I remember a few years ago, my wife and I were eating a meal with someone and it was when the Hamas was shooting missiles into Israel and we were going into to, uh, bomb shelters and different things. And then Israel was shelling back and, and there were many, many people being killed in Gaza. And I remember having a meal here. We were on a home assignment and um, we were having dinner with a man and he said, I don't understand why Israel doesn't just go in and wipe them all out. Well, my wife is not a violent person. I wish she was here to defend herself. But I thought she was going to jump across the table and start beating this guy up. But, uh, I mean, I knew she wouldn't, but I was kind of holding my breath because God is not willing that any of them should perish. God wants to stop all of this, and so we have a message. And then the third thing that I... But God is not willing that any should perish. Second Peter says that God is not willing that any should perish. The Samaritans are not willing, or God is not willing for the Samaritans to perish. So he sends people, he sent Jesus, he sent the disciples. And uh, then the third thing that I learned is this. And again, it comes from Peter. When he writes his letter, he says to the church, he says, we must be willing to give an answer when someone asks us about the hope that lies within us, we have to be willing to give an answer for that hope. I want to ask you another question, a rhetorical question. You don't answer it to me. You can deal with this <laughs> today. How long has it been since someone asked you to share the hope that you have? But we must live as people of hope. And then, as I already said about Yaakov, we also have to be hospitable. Hebrews says that we need to show hospitality to the strangers because they may be angels. They may be angels that we're unaware of. So we need to be willing to show hospitality to those who are different than us, to our neighbors who are different than us, to may, maybe may have a different religious background, a different, um, from a different race, from a different language. We must be willing to show hospitality to them. And we must be ready for the harvest. We must do as Jesus. That's the kind of Christian I want to be. So in answer to Yaakov, Every single day of my life, when that question rings in my ears, what kind of a Christian are you? I want to be ready to give him the answer that lies within me. I want to be like Christ. And I want to respond to his will. And I want to go. And I want to, re to respond to his divine call. May the Lord bless you. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. In Jesus' name.
Amen.